Um, I, uh, I typically make it a practice to avoid um, coming down politically uh, from the pulpit. I typically what I do is I try to you know show both sides left and right because I do believe that um, that uh, Christians can be left, right, center politically and be convicted that way. There are a couple times um, where I feel like I really need to kind of drop the hammer. Um, and as you guys know, there's uh, some big stuff happening in the United States right now. Um, and so I just, as a, as a short preface here to Job, um, and before we jump in, I, um, if you got your phones, uh, I, so I, want, I want you to contact this guy, Consent Chu. Um, do we have a picture of Consen? This is, yeah, Consent Chu. Um, Consent Chu is uh, the sponsor of AB7, uh, which is, for me, one of the most important pieces of legislation that's being entertained right now in the state of California. AB7 is, has the promise of ending daylight savings time in the state of California uh, forever. Um, yes, so... Uh, Here's the deal. At some point during this uh, during this sermon, you're gonna want to doze off. Great. When that happens, I plug https colon slash slash a twenty five dot asmdc dot org into your phone. Contact Congressman Chu of San Jose and say, "Get your butt in gear. Let's get this thing passed and free us from the tyranny of daylight savings time." Okay, let's let's be serious. And I'm being dead serious. Totally, we got to get this thing passed. Daylight savings time has been killing me for years, and it gets worse every year. The older I get, the harder it is. Uh, we're starting a series today um, on one of the most profound and uh, difficult texts in the Bible. We're starting a we, The book of Job is um, probably the, the most profound text in any language, um, in any, in all of history that deals with the issue of suffering and the problem of evil. Um, and so it, it's a pretty long book. So in you know six weeks or however long it takes us to get to Easter, it's, we're not going to be able to do everything. But I'm hoping that we get a good sense for what uh, Job is trying to teach us. Um, about how to live with, how to understand suffering, how to live in it, how um, to deal with the people in our lives who are going through it. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's both practical, but it's also deeply theological. And so with that, um, let's, let's read the text. It's, it's, uh, it's a pretty significant text here. This is uh, the very beginning of, of the book of Job. Um, I'll make some notes on translation on the way through. This is the Common English Bible. I like this translation, and I'll, I'll show why. So this is... Uh, Job 1, 1 to 12. A man in the land of Uz was named Job. Uh, Uz, we don't know exactly where that is. There's some, there's a bunch of po- uh, possibilities, but Uz was definitely not Israel. Job was a foreigner. Um, and the way that the, the, the narrative goes is it, it, it it's, the, the language is very kind of ancient Hebrew. In fact, some, some people believe this is the oldest book in the Bible in terms of actually being textualized or written down. So that, um, even that this was the, one of the very first books to be written down. Uh, this man, Job, was honest, a person of absolute integrity. He feared God and avoided evil. 
He had seven sons and three daughters and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a vast number of servants, so that he was greater than all the people of the east. This doesn't necessarily mean that he lives in the east, but for the, the Israelites, especially early on, uh, the people to the east were known to be rich and powerful. And this guy, Job, is even more rich and more powerful than they are. Each of his sons hosted a feast in his own house on his birthday. This Job's so rich that all of his seven sons have their own households. They invited their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had been completed, Job would send word and purify his children. Getting up early in the morning, he prepared entirely burned offerings for each one of them. Again, in the ancient world, this would have been fabulously expensive to be able to afford an entire burnt offering, an entire bull for every single one of his sons every birthday. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and then cursed God in their hearts. This was his regular practice. One day, the sons of God, or the divine beings, came to present themselves before the Lord. And the adversary, this is the Hebrew shatan, because uh, Job is so ancient, um, shatan eventually comes to be like the personal, or a personal name for Satan, Lucifer, uh, God's enemy. But um, before that, in ancient Hebrew, it really, really just meant adversary, somebody who accuses, somebody who uh, messes with you, wants to... to, to to kind of show you what you're doing wrong, something like that. So we don't know if this is Satan or not. Um, If it is, then it makes sense what he's doing. If not, then he's at least in league with Satan. But uh, the the adversary also came among them. The Lord said to the adversary, where did you come from? Shatan answered the Lord, from wandering throughout the earth. Yahweh said to Shatan, have you thought about my servant Job? Have you noticed this guy? Surely there's no one like him on earth, a man who is honest, who is of absolute integrity, who reveres God and avoids evil. Shatan answered Yahweh, well, does Job revere God for, for nothing, for no reason? Haven't you, haven't you fenced him in? Haven't you protected him, his house and all he has? Haven't you blessed the work of his hands so that his possessions extend throughout the earth? But but instead, stretch out your hand. Strike all he has. Take all his stuff away. And then, there's no doubt, he'll curse you to your face. Yahweh said to Shatan, Look, all he has is within your power. Only don't stretch out your hand against him. So Shatan left Yahweh's presence. If you're familiar with uh, the story, you know what happens next. What happens next is that in a very short period of time, uh, all the things that Job has, all the stuff that we listed out, his seven sons, his three daughters, his, his uh, cattle, his donkeys, his servants, his, everything is annihilated. You know, he gets... <laughs> It's like the it's, uh, messengers come. They're like, oh, Joe, bad news. Uh, all your kids are dead. In, in the past year, we, uh, we were praying for uh, a family that um, ended up losing uh, a son. 
And, you know, we, we actually had like, you know, tw- around the clock, 24-7 um, prayer for this family. And, and I took a couple of uh, late night, you know, 3 a.m. Um, vigils. And what was surprising to me is that as much as I was praying for Jack uh, and the Clearies as a, as a family, my mind kept wandering back to what I would do, how I would respond if one of my own kids was taken. It, it's 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 uh, it's so heavy for me that um, sometimes Aaron will start to tell me some story about somebody that she knows in Irvine Unified, you know, a child that's been hurt or um, or taken. And I, I'm just like, just stop, okay? Because I can't. You know, when I was when I was in my 20s, nothing bothered me. I'd tell dead, dead baby jokes until the the, the cows come home. Um, but once you know, I had kids of my own. Once started seeing the stuff that that we as a church community go through. You know, things got real. And and now there's a part of me that just can't handle that kind of loss. Job lost ten. So if that happens, right, as a human being, what what goes on? What is what is the immediate an unyielding response, whether you're a person of faith or not, whether you believe in anything or not, what does every single human being do the second something like this happens? Well, the answer is simple. It's why God? Why? And if you don't believe in God, it's like, well, why, universe? What did I do to deserve this? What, what, what happened? It's interesting, especially, uh, you know, people of faith very quickly... We, we, a lot of times we'll just say, what did I do? You know, what, what was, what it was, was I doing something? You know, I know I'm not like the most perfect person in the world, but out of nowhere, and, and you can only imagine what Job is thinking. For those of you who don't know, uh, this is a, this is a, a painting uh, by Renoir. Have, yeah, Renoir. This is Renoir's uh, 1896 version of uh, Oedipus the King, Oedipus Rex. If you don't know this, it's a play by Sophocles. Uh, one, it's an ancient play about actually maybe not too much, uh, not too much um, younger than the Book of Job, actually. And, and, and Oedipus is the story of a guy who's told, amongst other things, that, that he is going to kill his father. Right? And Oedipus is like, no way. I would never kill my dad. I love my dad. And I'm going to prove the gods wrong. I'm going to show them that, that I'm not that guy. That I would never do something that horrible. That would be the worst. And so uh, he goes on this quest to figure out how he can avoid killing his father. On the way, he is opposed by people who get in his way. And at one point, he actually has to resort to violence. He has to kill a guy to, to continue going on. Later on, he finds out that the guy he killed was actually his dad. Now, Aristotle... 
Uh, Aristotle was just, he was about 500 BC-ish. He came just a little after Sophocles. Aristotle said, this is the best example of human tragedy because it gets a fundamental truth about human tragedy. And that is this. All human tragedy, ultimately, is our fault. Right? This is what, this is what Aristotle thought. It's our fault. When you're, when you're hearing Oedipus' story, you realize if Oedipus hadn't, like, chosen to resist the, the gods, if Oedipus hadn't been so prideful and thought that he could solve the problems of his city, if he had just been more humble, if he didn't have that tragic flaw, then none of this would have happened. He wouldn't be a father killer, a patricide. And, and, and Aristotle said, that's how the universe is. The universe is a just place. It's tit for tat. If you do something wrong, then you're going to get punished. And if you're being punished, you know that you've done something wrong. You have to look inside and realize what's wrong with you. And that's one way human beings deal with tragedy. We're like, oh, what did I do? For Christians, it's, I didn't have enough faith if I just prayed more. If I'd sinned less. Well, let's look at the text. Let's see what Job tells us about this theory. The theory that it's your fault. Job was an honest person of absolute integrity. He feared God and avoided evil. A really uh, blunt literal translation would be, Job was absolutely complete and whole. He never, he was always straight and narrow. He revered God and every time evil started coming, he turned away from it, he ran from it. And it's not just this text that tells us God seems to agree, right? We go on a little bit. We see that God says, God literally says to, to Shatan, the adversary, surely there's no one like Job on earth. There's, this is the best guy I've ever seen. And uses exactly the same language. Complete, whole, mature, absolute integrity, always on the straight and narrow. Reveres me, fears me, is in awe of me. And then whenever evil comes on, he runs away. This is the, the author's way of saying, look, there is, this is the best, that he, if there's anyone on the earth who doesn't deserve to lose 10 kids and everything they own, it's this guy. And the, and the reason um, that we have the book of Job and not the book of, say, Tom or Gary or whomever, the reason we have the book of Job is because God is using Job as, as, as a representation for us. God's saying, here's one guy that you can't blame it on. Because you're going to be tempted all throughout history, whenever bad things happen, when horror takes place, when tragedy hits, you're going to be tempted to put the blame somewhere. Maybe on yourself, maybe on someone else. You're going to want a reason. You're going to want to... Why? Because we want control. We want to say, well, there's a reason for this, and if I do X, Y, or Z, I can change it. If I sin less or have more faith, or, I, or this person sins less or have more faith, then we can, we can change this, we can prevent this. We're in control. The last thing a prideful human being wants to believe is it is absolutely 100% A, out of your control, and B, not your fault. There's a temptation we have when horror strikes, and that is to feel guilty. As though it's about us. 
Because if we hold on to guilt and we blame ourselves and we think, oh, it's just, it's me. If I were this, that, or the other thing, then, then we take control away from God and we put it in our hands. And so one of the hardest things it is for us is to admit the first thing in your note sheets, it's not your fault. It wasn't Job's fault. And when you um, have experienced horror, when you will experience horror, and for some of us, maybe we're experiencing that right now, it's not your fault. If it's your fault, you'll know it. You'll know. You're like, why am I in prison? And the judge is like, well, you probably shouldn't have robbed that liquor store. Okay? Be like, that's, there does seem to be a very clear connection between my behavior and the action. That, that's when it's your fault. Okay? When a tree falls and kills your dog, that's not your fault. Well, okay. It's not your fault. What else, how else do humans deal with this? Well, there's a, nowadays, it's, it's very convenient because we have an entire worldview that's very persuasive now. Uh, something like 30 to 40% of millennials now are nuns. That is, they believe that there's, that they don't have any beliefs about religion. If they believe in anything, it's science, right? And what does science tell us? Well, in 1994, Dr. Ian Malcolm told us how things work. We have Dr. Ian Malcolm. There he is. Uh, Jurassic Park, 1994. Dr. Ian Malcolm. He explains, I mean, he's hitting on Laura Dern, but he's explaining to her how things work. And what he, he's a, he's a mathematician, he's an atheist, and he proposes chaos theory, which was super hot in the 90s and early 2000s. Now it's not hot, there's something else, but whatever. Um, and, and what he does is he's, and she's like, she's like, what's this chaos theory? And you're like, how do you explain stuff? And he's like, well, well, like, like, uh, a butterfly fl- flaps its wings outside of Japan and a tsunami destroys Los Angeles. And she's like, what? He's like, well, let me show you. So he dips his finger in a cup of water and he has her knuckle out and he, he drops the water on her knuckle and it, and it drips forward. And he says, wasn't that neat? I'm going to do it again. Which way do you think the water's going to go? And she goes, well, it's going to go forward again. I've seen it. I know. It. And so he drops and he puts on the knuckle and it goes the opposite way. And she's like, well, how's that possible? He's like, chaos theory. He's like, well, do, you didn't know Laura Dern? The universe is a meaningless place. Just everything's an accident. And, you know, there's, it's fabulously complex. So many different things are interacting all the time. Uh, there's no way to predict um, things at the, at the micro level, and those have macro effects. And so the, the universe is just like one huge cosmic accident to the point that most of it we just can't predict. Notice this one, this is nice because this relieves us of guilt. The universe is a cosmic accident. If there's a God, God walked away a long time ago, left things sort of running the way they are. And, and as a result, trees fall and they fall on your pet sometimes and sometimes they don't, but who knows? Let's look at the text. Let's, let's look at this cynical, nihilistic view about the world. Well, this is what God says to, to the adversary. Listen to this. Look, all Job has is within your power. Notice what happened there. God is pictured as like a king on the throne, and we'll explain a little bit more of this in a second. The adversary comes, right, and, and you know, says, God, I'm not so sure about this Job fellow. And God says, well, okay, fine. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delegate to you some of my power. And that is the power over what happens to Job. I'm going to let you have it. I'm not going to tell you what to do with it. I'm going to say it's yours. And then God says, but there's a limit to what I'm going to give you. He says, uh, don't stretch out your hand against him. That really means don't kill him. Right? Don't, don't kill him. It's an idiom in, in Hebrew. So God has all the power. God is in control. Then God releases some of that power and says, I'm going to, but retain some of it and still leave some, some, some separation and some, some rules, some constraints about what can and can't happen. Notice that's a much more fabulously complex notion of how things happen than just, it's all chaos or everything I do, I'm in control of everything, and if I just do the X, Y, or Z, and if I pray hard enough and have enough faith, I can make anything happen. Notice it's, it's way more complicated, because on the one hand, there is an element of chaos there. God's handing over to the adversary, okay, I'm going to let you do stuff. I don't know exactly what it's going to be. I'm going to allow you some freedom here and exercise that freedom. But at the same time, I'm still in control. I have the power to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to throw some constraints on you. And so there's this, this, this difficult to describe sort of tension between God's all-powerful nature and ability to control everything and God's willingness to allow the creation, and in this case an enemy force within creation, to have some ability to affect things. Well, one thing we can say is that if that's, if that's the case, right? If that's the case, then at the very least, even if we can't 100% describe the whys and hows of things, we can at least say this. It's not just pointless. That's the next thing in your note sheets. It's not just pointless. There's something else going on. It's not just chaos theory. It's not just a, a bajillion random accidents that lead to this, and there's really no meaning to anything, and you know, live however it makes you feel. Like, that's not, there's something more. It's complicated, it's difficult to describe, but it's beyond that. It's, it's more than that. Well, then what is it? How, 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 let's look at the text here. This is a very, very fascinating text. This is the first thing here. Okay, so what, what is the adversary? What's, been, what's Shatan been doing? Notice this, you've been wandering around the earth. Wandering throughout the earth. Uh, in the ancient world, um, kings typically had something like that we would think of as like a court jester. Okay? Uh, it, you may know this, but uh, people in power, they, uh, the people around them tell them how great they are. That's what they do. So if you're like a king or a CEO or whatever, like people are going to always flatter you and tell you what a good job you're doing and how wonderful you are. This does not apply to pastors. Uh, pastors are told not that. Um, but what people in power who have a lot of wealth and influence do then is they get worried. They get worried that they're not seeing the whole picture. And so what they do is they typically hire somebody who will tell them the truth. In the, uh, you know, you might remember the court fool um, in, in some medieval uh, context, or a court jester. Well, the adversary in the ancient Near East was very similar to that. Uh, courts would have a person who would kind of tell the truth and be like, yeah, it's not that great, you know. And so what the adversary's been doing is he's been wandering around the world to find out how things are going. And he's come back after seeing what humanity's like. And he's about to tell the king, God, what? The truth. What's the truth? 
We're garbage. That's what it is. I think about it. Think about it. If you just, you know, some random Martian comes down, lands, you know, starts looking at what goes on in the world. What, what would, like, human, humanity is a grease stain. Humanity is a virus. I would say right now, gathered in this room is probably about the best people I know. And you're like maybe a B minus. Okay. Like, I mean, serious? No, I mean, okay, you're all A pluses. I get it. But but outside, outside of here, like, wow, this world is really, really screwed up. And so, you know, presumably, the angels are like, "Oh God, you're awesome at everything. You're the best." And and, and Shatan possibly say, and the adversary comes in, he's like, "Nah, I can't believe you're committed to these scumbags." And before he speaks, Yahweh says, hey, I know what you're going to say. They're awful. It's what you always say. But have you seen Job? Have you seen this guy? I mean, he's legit. He's the real deal. He doesn't love me because it's convenient. He loves me because I'm worth loving. The text goes on. Satan's like, (laughs) okay, you picked that guy? Yeah, of course he's awesome. Who wouldn't be awesome if if they experienced what what Job has experienced, right? This guy's got it all. Ten kids. He's got uh, 100, 500 donkeys. I mean, who would want more than 500 donkeys? If I had 500 donkeys, I would be the best behaved person in the world. What is it? What's the, what's the, like the 21st century version of 500 donkeys like a Maserati is that what what how do you really know you're blessed private plane Mike Bloomberg Mike Bloomberg seems like he's got uh you know God's blessing or whatever so 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 that was that was sarcasm um so so the the adversary Shatan's like yeah of course he loves you you've given him everything all you gotta do just take it away. Just take away his stuff. And then I guarantee you, he's going to turn around and spit in your face. You see, God, you are hoping that humanity is out there and desires to love and know you. But I know humanity. Humanity is dirt. And if you just poke them a little bit and you just claw at them, all they, they start to whine, they start to complain, they start to commit violence, they start, and ultimately they're going to turn on you as fast as you can possibly believe. They, you're done, God. What's crazy about this is, A, what happens to Job has absolutely nothing to do with Job except for the fact that he's so great. Notice this. The reason that he's the one who gets picked on is because he's good. And there's nothing he could have done, presumably, other than being less good that would have caused him to avoid this disaster. And moreover, there's something going on, something heavenly, like there's this, there's a, a battle that's going on between God the king and the adversary who is at least representing the enemy, that there's some kind of clash that's going on there, that Job just gets caught up in the middle of it. 
You guys remember the far side? Love that far side. Be a far side. Okay, I don't know if you can read this, but there's two fish in a bowl. The bowl is on a stove. There's a cat dropping pepper into the bowl. And one fish says, first he warms our bowl. Now he's feeding us. And you thought he wasn't friendly. The far side, one of the great things about Gary Larson, he's a master of dramatic irony. The idea is that when dramatic irony is where we're, as an audience, we're aware of things that the, that the characters inside the, the cartoon aren't aware of. And that's the source of the comedy. We, we know that these fish are about to get eaten. And they're sitting there like, oh boy, it's warm finally. I've been cold so long. Let me eat this pepper. Something similar is happening in the book of Job. We, as the audience, are aware of something that Job never finds out. He never learns. He never finds out about this bet between God and the adversary. He just, he goes through life without ever getting, even at the end of the story, at the end of the story, God's going to show up and tell Job what's up. He never tells him any of this. He doesn't fill him in. He doesn't give him the answer. He doesn't say, Job, this is what was happening. Instead, Job just has to go through it. And yet we as a, as a reader get to see the bigger picture and we understand that something else is going on. What else is going on? What's the bigger picture here? I have a couple of things. The first thing. No. Yeah, skip that one. All right. God is revealing Job's faithful commitment to Job. When we started, I, I you know... I, when that whole Jack Clear, for those of you who don't know, uh, there was a young boy who came to um, Awana here. and um, Last year, 2019, near the end of the year, he, uh, he got sick really quick and, and he died. Um, and, and as I mentioned, I, I think that that experience caused everybody here who was praying for him to have a major gut check. How would we respond? To that, and in, in in a very similar way, I got a lot of texts when when Kobe Bryant died, being like, "Wow, nothing's promised." Think about his family. Think about my family. What would I do if something like this happened? You know what's crazy? Job will never know what Job's heart is like until he goes through this. It doesn't make it fair. It doesn't make it right. But there is a bigger picture here. Job is going to discover something that you could never know about yourself unless you experience the darkest depths. Because there are some people who go through something like what Job goes through, and they, they do. They say, you know what, God? If you're there, I hate you. And they walk away. Remember, God didn't do this. God didn't, he's not responsible for it. He allowed it to happen. Yeah, he gave some freedom in the universe for things to go badly. But in that, when, when, it, when, God, when Job and God have had this phenomenal relationship where Job's like, God, I need 25 more donkeys. And God's like, you got it, buddy. And, 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 that's been, and when that disappears, when that's, when that's taken away, suddenly there's actual space for Job to find out something about himself. Perhaps even be transformed into the person that God's looking for. Number two. There's an element to which God is demonstrating to the enemy, Satan, through Job's tragedy, that Satan's not going to win. 
Satan thinks something about humanity. Satan thinks humanity is not worth redeeming, not worth... Satan thinks humanity is garbage and just wants to torture us all. And God is, is using Job to say, you know what? There's something about these people that is worth loving and re- worth redeeming no matter how jacked up things get. And, and, and no matter what you do, Satan, you don't have the power I have. God's like, Satan thinks, Satan thinks it's going to be a cinch. Take away the donkeys, take away the cattle. You know, Job's done. No, it, it's going to turn out that's not the case. Job is just going to like wrestle with this and battle it. And, and ultimately, Job is not going to show Satan what Satan thinks Job ought to show him. And in this, I mean, question for those of you who've been church for a while. Have you heard a story in church about a guy who's perfect, like wonderful in every possible way, and yet comes into a world that decides to torture him to death? That's Jesus, right? Do, do you not notice that, that Job is a prefiguration of Christ? I mean, here's, here's a guy that there's no reason for this to happen to him, and yet it does. And what's fascinating is that God says, but on one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to protect his life. And God says, ultimately, I'm not going to do that for myself. I'm going to give myself over to death. I'm going to absorb death into myself through Christ and the power of the Spirit. I'm going to overcome death, yes, but I'm going to go right through it. I'm, he preserves Job from that, but Job shows us an example of a human being who's, who's going to go through the redemptive process that Jesus goes through. I think that's number three. God is using Job to prefigure Christ. And in that, Job has no idea that someone's going to write down his story. And for millions of people throughout human history, it's going to give succor and, and, and hope and, and a way to, to, to wrestle and deal when, when life is at its absolute bottom, when you've absolutely hit the, the bottom, when there's no hope and you're, and you're crying out, why God, why? Job has no idea of any of this. Job never learns any of this. That's number four. Job, Job stays in the dark his entire life. And yet we can see that all of this is going on. And so what about us when, when we're, we're crying out, God, why? God, why? Well, Job's story is giving us a template for when we go through the darkness. And the hardest thing is to acknowledge that when God disappears and suffering and hopelessness and, and, and horror and loss seem to replace God, we're being asked to wait without knowing why. That's the uh, last thing you know, cheats. Wait without understanding. I think for those of us who've actually walked through um, the crucible and have been um, 
really scarred by it and really damaged by it. We can we can come you know looking back, we can sort of see some things that are good and and redemptive that 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 take place through it. But if we're really honest with ourselves, like we still can't say definitively, oh, that's why it happened. And I don't think we ever will. Which, and, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but because um, it's coming in the, in, the, in the coming weeks, but, but if you're going through this awful place, right? You know, your marriage is, is a disaster. Um, you've lost someone very dear to you. Uh, work is, uh, is hellish. Um, your kids hate you and don't respect you or whatever. When you're, when you're going through these things, if someone comes alongside you and is like, oh, it's all part of God's plan, you know, hang in there. You're going to see, you're going to see that it's a really good thing that your kid died. Yeah. Um, that person is toxic and get them away from you. They are not from Christ. Bigger picture for us. This might be an opportunity to grow. When you're in the middle of the crucible, it might be an opportunity to have yourself shaped and refined. So many times I've uh, seen this happen as a pastor um, in this church where people go through things that are just awful. And what's fascinating to me is I see them as they're wrestling through these things. I see them growing in faith. I see uh, people who were prideful become humble. I see people who uh, had everything under control learn to let go and have faith. I see these things happen. Okay, so there might be some silver lining there for you. And, and it's good to look for that. There might be other reasons. Uh, number two, it might be an opportunity to serve the greater good. It might be that what you're going through is going to have incredible effects beyond what you can know. That might be the case. And I've seen that too. I've seen people whose suffering has led to incredible redemption around them. And that's, it's a beautiful thing to see. I mean, it's horrible at the, at the time, but, but I can see that there is something that, that has been of value and redemptive out of suffering. So that might be going on. Number three, there might be a call here to imitate the sufferings of Christ. To in your own flesh and in your own experience, walk the walk of the cross. And in that, come to know Jesus better. but you might never know. You might never know that God and Satan were having a spat and you got caught in the middle. You might never know that this is costing you something, but it's actually leading to something that's glorious on another side. You may never see it. And so you have to wait and trust and hold on. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, I pray um, for those uh, who have been um, to the place of grief and loss and death that you will um, give insight to give them partial answers to see that it wasn't just pointless. 
for those who are in the middle of the crucible, for those who are experiencing um, horror right now, God, I just pray that they'll know it's not their fault. And that in it, as they wait without knowing why, that that you'll shape and, and bring good things, even if we can't see them. And for those of us, God, who... Um, where the crucible is coming and, and, and the, the test is at hand and it's showing up soon. Lord, I pray that you'll fortify us, give us a community of people to walk with us and hold us as we struggle, as we grieve, and as we uh, battle. And I pray, God, that we'll set our eyes on the crucified Lord who endured uh, the whips and the chains, who endured the nails, who endured the cross and death, and know that, that you, God, who have been there, walk with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.